Our great God and Father, we pray that as we open up your word, that you would open up our hearts and our minds to your love and to your power and to your voice. God, make us responsive, make us attentive, make us sensitive, God, to what you might want to speak to us about today. So come, Holy Spirit, come in this place. Break in through the preaching of your word into the crevices in our hearts and lives and renew us and bring us hope, challenge us, direct our lives, God, so that we can be your faithful and obedient people in this world. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said... So that little video that we watched uh, reminded me of the very first time in my own life when I ever felt like God was telling me to do something. And so this was years before actually God had a, a real hold on my life. I was still in elementary school and I was out on the playground at recess and I was near the drinking fountain when this young kid walked up to get a drink of water. And I don't know why, but it felt to me like some alien sense of compassion. It was alien, at least to me, because it was not a regular part of my experience to feel compassion toward other people. And, um, you know, I was a pretty self-absorbed, privileged little kid. And uh, like many little ones, I was pretty narcissistic and I was concerned about me. You know, my circle of concern didn't fall much outside of that, but I, I felt this sense of compassion toward this boy who walked up to get water. His name was Jeffrey, and he was socially awkward. He was a little bit of an outcast, didn't have any friends. And I felt like God was impressing upon me, like he was telling me to go and befriend Jeffrey. Now, uh, I responded and kind of reached out, I guess, in an awkward way and started to connect with him, befriend him. And, you know, there wasn't anything real dramatic that came of that. I don't have some powerful preacher's story to rehearse to you out of that, you know, about how his life was transformed and how, you know, to this day, we're best of friends. And now he's on staff at our church or something like that. But, but you know, I think that early impulse to get outside of myself and to expand the circle of concern in my life to include other people who are not like me that, that impulse, that conviction has been something that God has consistently been doing in my life for all of these years that I've been walking with him. And you know, I know I'm not alone. I, I think that one of the characteristic things that the Spirit of God does in our life when we become a follower of Jesus is he impresses upon us, he convicts us, he challenges us, he's constantly leading us to get outside of ourselves, to expand our circle of concern, to include others who are not like us, those who don't think like us or talk like us or vote like us or dress like us, and to, to include into the circle of our own hearts and concern those who are outside of that circle in sort of a natural way. And this is what God is consistently doing with us. You know, we, we began a series uh, a few weeks back entitled Abraham, and we've been talking together from the life of Abraham what it looks like to walk with God by faith. In other words, what does it look like to be on a journey of faith? And over the last few weeks, we've talked specifically about some of the obstacles for that journey of faith. But today, what I want to talk to you about is where that journey of faith ultimately is taking us. 
In other words, what, what God is seeking to do in our lives is he's seeking to pull us out of ourselves and to push us out into the needs of others around us and to move toward them in love. And we're going to be looking today at a story in the life of Abraham where he is brought out from that little circle of concern that included himself and his family and his desire for a baby. And that circle of concern is expanded to include a whole bunch of people who are not like Abraham at all. They're very different from him. They have different values, different uh, preferences. They worship different gods. They, and, and Abraham has this heart of concern for them. And my hope and prayer is that as we enter into this narrative, you'll find that God is pushing you to get outside of yourself and to engage your own heart and life into the concerns of other people around you. The story picks up in Genesis chapter 18, verse 16. Last week, if you were here, we saw that God appeared to Abraham and Sarah in the form of these three weary travelers. And where we pick up the story today... Uh, the, the meal that he shared with these travelers is over and the hospitality that he extended has come to an end and it's time for them to leave. And so he gets up to walk these travelers out and to kind of see them along their way uh, and look at what it says. And then the men set out from there and they looked down towards Sodom and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. And it's interesting because in this moment, where these three travelers had been with Abraham and Sarah, and they had come to announce the good news about a new child. Now, as they are about ready to leave, God brings another announcement to them. This time, it's not about the birth of a son. Instead, it is an announcement about the judgment of God upon a city, namely the city of Sodom. And as the story unfolds, uh, it, it, it sort of begins with this window into this internal deliberation in the mind and the heart of God. Look at what it says in the text. Then the Lord said, in the, in the original Hebrew, it sort of implies, and then the Lord said to himself. God is sort of deliberating. He says, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Notice uh, God asks in the text, he says, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? And so God is deliberating on whether or not Abraham should be invited into what God is about to do. And the reason why God is bringing Abraham in on what God is about to do is because of Abraham's vocation and his destiny and his purpose. He says it like this in verse 18. He says, seeing that all of the peoples of the earth will be blessed through Abraham. This is a callback into Genesis 12 where Abraham's calling, vocation, destiny is, is revealed. He says, look, I'm gonna bless you so that through you, I can bring my blessing to all of the peoples of the earth. In other words, God's choice of Abraham was never meant to end with Abraham. The blessing was never meant just for him and his own. You know, and listen, 
This is God's intention whenever he blesses. He blesses us so that we who are blessed might be a blessing. You know, when God blesses you with something like a house or some resources or some gifts or some money or whatever, he desires that in and through you, other people, other families might be blessed. And I just want to point out that this is very different from our typical way of viewing things, isn't it? You know, we often think, how can I leverage my giftedness and my resources and what I have in order to bless and serve my family? But notice Abraham is blessed not just for his family, but that through his family, all of the families of the earth might be blessed. And how is he to bless others? Well, the text tells us it is by doing righteousness and justice. Righteousness in the biblical imagination involves covenant faithfulness to our neighbor. In other words, you have obligations to people around you. You have obligations to the God who made you. And to be a righteous person is to engage in positive action that is faithful to those covenant obligations to your neighbors and to the God who made you. Justice, uh, in, in contrast to righteousness, or righteousness in the biblical imagination is about performing kind of the positive acts of love and justice, or love and goodness toward my neighbor. Right, justice is about rectifying wrongs that are being inflicted upon my neighbor. It is about setting those things that are wrong to right again. And so the way we bless others is by doing righteousness and justice. And this vocation that God has given to Abraham and to us is why God now brings Abraham in on what he is going to do. Look what it says. He says, look, Abraham has been charged to play an incredible role in human history. And so he says, because I have chosen you to have a role among all of the other nations, I am going to open up and I'm going to disclose to you a secret about what I'm about to do among those nations. And note the disclosure in the next verse. Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Notice in our text that God has heard an outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah. That word outcry is almost a technical phrase, a technical word in the Hebrew Bible to describe a people that is suffering a unique injustice and violence and oppression and they're being taken advantage of. It's the way in which the children of Israel are described when they are enslaved in Egypt. They cry out to God and hear an outcry from the surrounding communities around Sodom and Gomorrah are crying out because of the violence and the injustice and the darkness that Sodom and Gomorrah are inflicting upon them. And so the cry rings out because the societies of the plain had become, they, they had experienced such a vicious and corrupt, you know, experience from Sodom. Ezekiel 16, 49 puts it like this. He says, look, what is the sin of Sodom? He says, this is the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant and overfed and unconcerned. 
They did not help the poor and the needy. They were haughty and they did detestable things before me. And so this outcry has come to God about what's happening to the communities around Sodom and Gomorrah, the unrighteous, unjust behavior of these cities. And it's interesting because God decides to go down, the text describes, and to pay them a visit to see if things are as bad as he has heard them to be. Look what it says in the text. Uh, So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, and uh, God God said, look, I've, I've gone down to see whether or not their sin is as bad as I had heard it to be. Now, it's interesting, isn't it? God goes down to investigate and to find out whether things are as bad as he heard that they would be. Now, isn't that interesting? Because doesn't God already know how bad things are? I mean, why does he need to go on a journey to go figure that out? You know, isn't God omniscient? Doesn't he know everything there is to know? You know, but listen, the Bible is using here human language to describe divine activity. The Bible often does this. It it comes to us in the words of John Calvin in baby talk, speaking our language so that we can kind of understand the action, the activity of God in this world. And here, human language is used to describe divine activity. It's using these human terms to say something about God's justice. And what is it saying about God's justice with this description? It's saying that justice demands a thorough investigation, right? I mean, justice demands a thorough investigation, a thorough investigation of all sides, not just one side. Justice doesn't just listen to one side of a matter and then render a judgment. God has heard an outcry, but he can't just listen to one side. He's got to go investigate and search it out and probe it. And that's why a court case is caused is called a hearing, so that everything that can be heard is actually heard, right? Now, what happens next is strange by all accounts. (laughs) Look at what it says in the text. And so the men turned from there and they went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. You know, uh, one of the Hebrew commentators that I've been uh, consulting named Robert Alter, he's a Hebrew scholar, and he points out that this phrase, and so Abraham stood before the Lord, uh, is only one way in which this phrase has been translated or has come to us. Uh, Other translations or other uh, manuscripts of the Hebrew text has, and the Lord stood before Abraham. And some of the supposition is, is that, that, that the way it's described that God basically says, look, I'm going to bring Abraham in. And so he shares with him what he's going to do. And then God stands back and he just kind of waits to see how Abraham is going to respond. God is always waiting for how the church is going to respond to his revelation that he has given to us. God discloses who he is. He discloses his will for your life and my life and and for this world. He discloses himself and then stands back, as it were, and waits to see how we are going to respond. And notice how Abraham responds. It says, then Abraham drew near 
Abraham drew near. Uh, Robert Alter, again, Hebrew scholar, points out that this phrase, drew near, is a technical phrase uh, to describe somebody who is drawing near to approach a, a, the bench in a court of law to deliver a defense. So Abraham now steps up in response to God's revelation and he starts presenting a defense. A defense of who? A defense of what? Well, as the story unfolds, he starts to present a defense and to advocate on behalf of Sodom. Now, this is really fascinating because we know that Abraham has a family member in this city, Lot, He's concerned about Lot, but here he doesn't advocate for Lot. Instead, he advocates for the unjust, violent, you know, awful Sodom and Gomorrah. He advocates on their behalf. And look at how it unfolds. This is fascinating. We're just going to read a lot of Bible. Are you okay with that? It doesn't matter if you're okay. We're reading Bible. If you don't like the Bible, you can... No, I'm just kidding. Um... And Abraham drew near and said, he said boldly, audaciously, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose, suppose, God, suppose that 50 righteous are within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked, far be that from you. Shall the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, if I find 50 righteous in this city, I'll spare the city for their sake. And Abraham answered and said, well, behold, I have undertaken to speak to you, Lord, but I who am but dust and ashes. You know, he's humble, he's submissive, but he's still audacious and bold. Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for the lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. And again, he spoke to him and said, well, suppose 40 are found there. And he answered, for the sake of 40, I will not destroy it. He said, well, oh Lord, don't be angry, but I'll speak. Suppose there are 30 found there. And he answered, I won't do it if I find 30 there. And he said, well, behold, I've undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose that 20 are found there. And he answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. And then he said, oh, Lord, let not the Lord be angry with me, and I will speak again, but this once. Suppose that 10 are found there. And he answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. This is a strange story, isn't it? I mean, for all the world, it sounds as if God and Abraham are like two merchants in the marketplace haggling over the price of melons, right? Like, what what is, you know, know, would you take 50? Would you take 45? What about 40? What about 30? What about 20? 20, 25? Can I get an offer? 25, you know? And for all intents and purposes, it looks as if Abraham has won the negotiations. He's negotiated God all the way down from 50 to 45 to 40 to 30 to 20 to 10. And he's like, 10, final offer, deal. And then they shake on it and then they uh, leave. And maybe he could have negotiated down further, maybe down to five or four or three, but Abraham doesn't need to see how low he can go because he has already established the point 
that God and Abraham are seeking to make. And what is that point? What is it that God here is agreeing to with Abraham? Notice in the text, he agrees with Abraham not just to spare the righteous, but to spare the wicked for the sake of the righteous. Now, it's, almost it's hard for us to kind of grapple with kind of what's happening here in its own historical context because you and I live in a highly individualistic culture. We live arguably in the most individualistic society that has ever been on the face of the planet. We're all about personal responsibility, personal ownership. We're all about me and my and my responsibility. But here in this story, it's addressing a collectivist society. And in this society, it was often the case. I mean, in the ancient world, um, you could be guilty, you could come underneath judgment because not just of what just you had done, but because of what uh, wicked family members of yours had done. You were complicit. Or wicked community members that were a part of your larger community, maybe that shared the same blood and destiny as you. This is a collectivist society. And there were reasons for that. This wasn't outlandish. You know, perhaps they thought, well, um, you know, even though you didn't do it, you knew it happened and you said nothing. Or maybe though even you weren't doing it, you're complicit because you benefited from the evil behavior of others. Or, or maybe it's just that, look, this was a family member and you're tied together with them through blood and so what they did, you're responsible for. And so there was a very, very strong sense in the ancient world of this idea of collective guilt now, Abraham knew that, his readers knew that, but here Abraham is proposing a radical theological innovation. He is raising a question, and he's asking the question, look, if, 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 if a bunch of guilty people can incriminate some innocent folks, can that principle work in reverse? Can the principle work in reverse? If the righteous can be incriminated by their association with the wicked, could it be that the wicked could be spared by their proximity to the righteous? And indeed, God reveals the guilty many can be pardoned because of their proximity to the innocent few. In other words, the power of righteousness is stronger than the power of wickedness and guilt. Now, let me just kind of summarize what happens next because it's important. An investigation happens. You know, the two messengers leave and they go and they investigate uh, Sodom and indeed they find out that it's not just as bad as they heard, but it's probably worse. The two messengers that go there are threatened with gang rape from every man in the city. This is a violent, dark, oppressive place. And there's not even 10 righteous there. And so they graciously warn Abraham's nephew Lot to get out while he can. And he flees with his wife. And some of you know the story. His wife uh, turns back and she's transformed into a pillar of salt. And then the Lord rains down fire and brimstone upon Sodom. And we wonder, well, does Abram's bartering work? You know, he negotiated with God. Did it, did it not work after all? 
I mean, he went to barter, negotiate with God to kind of negotiate him down. And he gets down to 10. And uh, well, later on in the story, in chapter 19, verse 27, it says, Abraham went early to the place where he stood before the Lord and God remembered Abraham. And Abraham sees the smoldering ashes and smoke. And so the question, did Abraham's prayer have an impact? Yes, it doesn't say in the text that God remembered Lot. It says God remembered Abraham and Lot was spared not for Lot's sake, but for the sake of Abraham. And so although the righteousness of Abraham doesn't, it doesn't impact or affect the deliverance of Sodom and Gomorrah, it does affect the deliverance of Lot. And the rest of us humans are wondering whether or not there is ever going to be a righteous one who is righteous enough to affect the deliverance of the guilty many. Now, I just want to say, make three brief observations from this text that I think are incredibly important for us to get today. The first thing I want you to see in this text, the first statement I think this, this text, the claim it's making on us is it's making a claim about the vocation of God's people. In Abraham, we see a picture of our vocation as it relates to the world. What is Abraham doing in our story that connects with what we ought to be doing in our world. I want you to see that Abraham is advocating for mercy. Abraham, in our story, I mean, the whole negotiation is he is advocating for mercy. Certainly, Sodom and Gomorrah doesn't deserve to be delivered. They, they, that, that's not, he's not saying, look, God, you know, come on, they're not that bad. And, you know, they've had it rough. He's like, no, they are, they're bad. They, things are as bad, but would you spare them? And this is mercy. Mercy is not giving people what they deserve. And all of us need mercy, amen? All of us need mercy. And the vocation of God's people in this world are to be advocates of mercy. And I just think it's true that we inhabit a culture right now that is thin on mercy. It is stripped of grace. You know, whether it be the religious right or the progressive left, we live in a cancel culture where if you make the wrong move, you say the wrong thing, you post the wrong thing, you just get out of line and you get slapped and you get canceled and you get, you know, thrown under the bus. You know, there's a strong moral impulse, not just from the religious right in our culture, but also from the progressive left. But what both groups often lack is the posture of mercy and grace. To say, look, you are more than the worst thing you have ever done. That there is a road back from the stupid things you have done to grace and mercy and forgiveness. And because the church is composed of broken people like you and me who have been rescued by the mercy and grace of God, then the church ought to be full of people who are more than equipped to show mercy and grace to other people who are guilty and who are wrong and to be advocates of mercy. Civil rights lawyer and attorney, Brian Stevenson, in his beautiful book, Just Mercy, put it like this. 
He said, we are all broken by something. We have all hurt someone and have been hurt, amen? You have all hurt someone and you've all been hurt. There is strength, a power even, in understanding brokenness because embracing our brokenness creates a need and desire for mercy and perhaps a corresponding need to show mercy. When you experience mercy, you learn things that are hard to learn otherwise. You see things you can't see otherwise. You hear things you can't hear otherwise. You begin to recognize the humanity that resides in each of us. Are you an advocate for mercy? Or are you quick when the, when the conversation circles around somebody who has said the wrong thing or done the wrong thing, either to their roommate or to their spouse or to their son or to their parents or whatever, are you quick to jump on with like, yeah, we gotta write them off, we gotta get them out? Or is your posture one of mercy and grace? You know, it's interesting, I was listening to an, an, a, a discussion on a radio program called Unbelievable between uh, the New Testament scholar N.T. Wright and a secular humanist uh, 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 philosopher and thinker whose name is Douglas Murray. And Douglas Murray in this discussion said something incredibly interesting. He's not a Christian, uh, he's not a believer, but he pointed out that the new progressive uh, kind of morality, he, he just said, look, he said, it's always shaming, it's always calling people out. And, and he, he said this, he said, you know, uh, he referred to uh, an incident that, that occurred a, a few years back when a white supremacist walked into a church in the South and shot the place up and killed a bunch of people in this African-American church. And he said that the, the next day, he said the mom of one of the victims was on TV extending forgiveness to the killers. And then he talked about touring around with uh, uh, another thinker, leader, a friend of his whose name is Cornel West, uh, who describes himself as a Christian socialist. And he said, uh, Cornel West is always referring to people, uh, his political enemies, as brothers. And he says, I know some people write that off as sort of, sort of like an annoying tick that he has. Um, but then he said he was, he was, he was talking with... with, with uh, Dr. West, and he said, in referring to the shooting, uh, the people who killed those other people in that church, he, he talked about that brother that walked into the church to kill those people. And he's just like, he was shocked. He's like, this is how can this unbelievably horrendous act, how can you refer to this person as your brother? And then Douglas Murray, the, the, you know, the non-Christian, you know, secular humanist, he says this, he says, look, this is a living example of displaying the Christian ethic of loving and forgiveness of neighbors. And he says, if this were just, quote, seen a little bit more, it would have a profound impression on the world. When the church is being the community of broken, rescued, redeemed people in need of mercy who have been recipients of the mercy and grace of God, when we are living that way, embodying that in how we are interacting with people around us, we all do stupid things. We all need mercy, amen? So let's extend it. Let's advocate for mercy. So number one, it reveals to us something about our vocation in the world. But secondly, I want you to see this story reveals something about the heart of God. I, I know, I, I know this story appears as if, at least at first, it looks as if Abraham 
is trying to twist God's arm. But let's remember who started this conversation in the first place. It was not Abraham, but God. God was the one who disclosed to Abraham something. And God was the one who stood back and waited for Abraham to engage. This is not so much a story about Abraham baiting God. I think this is more a story about God baiting Abraham. He's leading Abraham somewhere. And notice there is no argument. I mean, God puts up no fight. 40, sure. 30, sure. 20, sure. 10, sure. Don't you want any more? Doesn't hurt to ask. This story is disclosing something about the heart of God. Yes, in chapter 19, we see God as the judge of all the earth who hears the cries of the outcasts and the oppressed and those who are done violence and those who are being gang raped or doing anything else that you see happening in Sodom and Gomorrah. God hears it and God sees it and God will hold the world account for what it has done. God will hold us accountable for what we have done. We will answer before the face of God. God is the judge of all the earth and we will answer to the judge. And that's not a bad thing. It's a very, very good thing and it's dignifying to humanity to say that what you say and do matters. It eternally matters. But the fullest disclosure of God's heart in this text is not a God of judgment. It is a God who is more eager and more quick to show mercy and forgiveness than he is to do judgment. You know, God is not willing that any should perish, but that everyone would come to repentance. God says, look, I have, no, I, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Don't misunderstand me. I don't want you to perish. I don't want you to die. I want you to turn away from those destructive patterns that you're caught up in and that are taking you all the way down to darkness. Break, I long for you to turn. God's heart is forgiveness. God's heart is salvation and deliverance. God is far more eager to forgive and to extend mercy than he is to judge. And I just wonder if the church is as quick to show mercy and as slow to judge as God is. So number one, we see something about our vocation as God's people. Secondly, we see something in this story about the heart of God. But thirdly and finally, and I think most profoundly in this story, we see something about the power of righteousness or we, we could put the power of a righteous one the power of the righteous one. The, the whole debate with God and Abraham revolves around this question, can the righteous few be sufficient to save the guilty many? And this story, I mean, make no mistake, this story does not make light of sin and guilt and shame. It is real. And you and I know that we oftentimes do things and say things that we just can't undo and unsay. This summer I went to Mammoth and on the last day of this very beautiful, lovely, relaxing vacation, we had loaded up the car and I was feeling nice and relaxed and good. And uh, we were down in the parking structure, the parking garage, and I put the car in reverse and I just quickly reversed out. And as I was re reversing out, I turned and I don't know why, but I didn't see the big uh, concrete wall right there. And I just rammed my car right into the wall. 
my poor Honda Pilot. And you know, you know, if you've been in any kind of accident, the, the first thing that's kind of swirling, you're like, I, you just want to go back and undo what you just did, right? You just think, if I just had a split second of a different decision, but you cannot undo what you have done. And you know, this is certainly true for the, the cars we damage, but it's more profoundly d- true about the people you've damaged, the people you've hurt by what you've said, by what you've done. We want to excuse it. We want to justify self. We want to undo it, but you cannot undo it. There is power and there is strength to the harm, to the wrong, to the damage we do to other people. It's hurtful and it's painful. And you just can't undo it. And the Bible never makes light of sin. Sin is powerful and wickedness is strong and the damage we've done for for people, you can't undo it. It is strong and it's powerful. But what this text says is there is something that is more strong and more powerful than wickedness and darkness. And that which is more powerful and strong is righteousness. It is faithfulness. And what this text reveals, what this story reveals is that God cherishes and honors and values covenant faithfulness, righteousness so much that when he sees it, he is willing to spare the wicked for the sake of the righteous. And I'm sure Lot was thinking, maybe Abraham was thinking, I wish there was only somebody who was righteous enough, who had been faithful enough, whose righteousness could be strong enough to spare the wickedness, to forgive the guilty. But then one day, the righteousness of God would become flesh and blood among us. Or as Paul writes in Romans, but now the righteousness of God has been revealed from faith to faith, apart from the law, through the faithfulness, through the righteousness, through the covenant faithfulness of Jesus Christ, God has revealed himself. He'll later say in the book of Romans, by one man's sin, many were made sinners, but by one man's righteousness, many have been made righteous. You can receive forgiveness and deliverance as a free gift of God. Because Jesus not only stands in our place, he not only is righteous where we have failed to be sinful, Jesus stands in and he takes our sin upon himself and he bears God's judgment. He takes upon himself fire and brimstone into his own heart, into his own life on the cross so that you can be freed from judgment and hell and death and you can receive righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. And that's the gospel. And it is free. And you can reach out and receive that into your own heart and life and then get outside of yourself and go into the world and become an advocate of mercy and justice for people around you. Let's pray together. Our great God and Father, we come to you as broken people in need of mercy. We come to you as people who have been recipients of your eternal and unfathomable ocean of mercy and grace that has poured out upon us through the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Through our proximity, 
through our connection to Jesus. You have set us free, you have delivered us. God, we thank you that you have been our strong help and our righteousness and our savior. God, fill us with joy that is appropriate for people who have been set free from guilt and shame, who have been released from judgment, who have been the recipients of mercy. And empower us, your church, to be advocates of mercy and grace toward ourselves and toward all the people around us, toward even the people who inhabit spaces like Sodom and Gomorrah. And we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus, who is our righteousness. Amen.